This be heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Selena, you were singing your lyrics and you stopped? What's going on? I thought you was hype. I, I was. I, <laughs> I do. No, that, that song is lit. Um, welcome everyone to Be Heard Talk. Super happy to be here. This is the show where we talk race, politics, and culture. We do that all from our very different, but mostly similar perspectives. My name is Selena Hill. You can follow me at Miss Selena Hill. That's Miss Selena Hill spelled with an M-S. Shout out to all those who are watching us via Zoom right now or via Facebook Live. Stanley, please drop that link in the chat so we can share it. Shout out to Alexis, Bianca, Jonathan, Carrie, Mal, Marla, Melissa, Molly, Nina, Rachel, and all the others who will log in momentarily. What's going hey on? Hey guys. Hey Stanley. Stanley. Hey, I just dropped the Facebook Live link in the Zoom chat, but hop on Zoom so I know it's real. That's my <laughs> today, guys. Gotcha. Yo. Hey everyone. Selena, you want to be professional. Alyssa's back on the show. I just want to talk about myself, guys. Listen, it's Stanley. I know you love me. Why aren't you following me on Twitter? Follow me on Twitter at Stan Fritz. Follow me on Instagram at Stan Fritz. Follow me on Snapchat. No, don't follow me on Snapchat. I don't do anything there. But follow me. I need followers so I can make believe I'm important. Do that. Do that. Damn, it got mad quiet when I said that. That's really hurtful. <laughs> Go ahead. Who else do we have here? Hi, Alyssa. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. You gonna tell us a little something? How can we stalk you? What's up? It's my first um, So yeah, um, I'm Alyssa Fuchs. I'm, uh, I guess, your legal correspondent, and you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com/slash Alyssa Fuchs, um, at Alyssa Fuchs on Twitter, and Alyssa.Fuchs on Instagram. And that's I L Y S S A F U C H S if you're nasty. Um, and of course, you can always follow the facebook.com slash politically preposterous page. Um, and, you know, I'm still posting stuff up there from time to time. So it's really good to be back. Hey, everybody. Hey. hey. I'm really happy to meet you, Alyssa, because I, you know, we talk about you a lot, especially your perspective. So um, it's exciting for me today. I love it. Um, I just want, just for those who are new to the show, back when we were called Let Your Voice Be Heard, Alyssa was our longtime first legal correspondent, then co-host for four years, uh, back when we were all outside, um, lo and behold, so we're super happy to have her back. But yeah, let's throw it to Tammy. How's it going? Love the natural hair. What's up, y'all? Um, I'm Tammy David, Be Heard's problematic fave. Today, I'm not problematic. It's my hair that's problematic. <laughs> She won't behave. And you know what? After this, I'm going to have to get that Jane Carter solution and I'm going to have to get to work. But before that, let's start our show with the news roundup, which is where we talk about the latest in news, hip hop, media, and tell you all the stories that I know for a fact you're dying to hear. Yes. So, first up, Let's start this uh, segment on a funny note, because Stanley, if you don't follow him, uh, posted the funniest meme I think I've seen in like, since this whole George Floyd thing started. And I gotta give it to you, Stan, that Animorphs meme of Candace Owens, <laughs> it was yeah. gold. For those of you who don't know, Candace Owens is the Mrs. Tom we all love to hate. Mm -hmm. Since making a splash on the conservative scene in 2017, Miss Candy has gone out of her way for black liberation, but not in the way you think. Her Blexit platform encourages black people to leave the Democratic Party and embrace Republican and conservative values. She's definitely your average black should go red bobblehead with the same silly messaging we've heard, we've all heard from that one funny acting cousin, but She's special because she's black and she's famous for exalting Trump, making outrageous and often false claims for her arguments, and now for her horrible interview with Glenn Beck. Beck leads the segment by acknowledging that Officer Chauvin was wrong for murdering George Floyd, especially since he was on the ground. But Stanley, if it's okay, I wanna play a clip because there is no way that my summary can do it justice. Is that okay? Do you have the clip? Yeah, I have it queued up. All right, go ahead. All right. 
this is a guy with a very long record and a very long uh, uh, criminal record. Uh, he was said to be cleaning up his life by his family. I hope that was true. Uh, but he was also high on fentanyl and dropped a bag of drugs that he was carrying at the time. Is this really the guy that black America, I mean, they were very careful to pick Rosa Parks. Is this the symbol of, of black America today? Wait for it. Um, I'm going to say yes, it is a symbol of black America today. And it's a symbol of a broken culture in black America today. And that people are not willing to talk about again, um, how we contribute to our own demise. Um, the fact that he has been held up as a martyr sickens me. Uh, George Floyd was not a good person. Um, I don't care who wants to spin that. I don't care how CNN wants to make you think he changed his life around or MSNBC wants you to believe he was just, you know, after his, uh, uh, sixth stint in prison, I think, or fifth stint in prison, really going to change things around. So, Alyssa, I'm going to you on this one first. Can Black people sue her for defamation of our people? Or what? <laughs> Alyssa, shocked. She don't even know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to comment on this one. <laughs> You're... You're um, no, okay. I'm sorry. I was having a little sound problem. I mean, listen, it's like, I don't know. Conservatives um, have drank the Kool-Aid and there are conservatives have that have drank this Kool-Aid regardless of what race they are. So, I mean, we're out here trying to do good work and get racial justice. And there are people, and unfortunately, Candace Owens is one of them that I honestly think, like, I don't know if she really believes this. I think she's trying to make a buck. And like, if that's the case, like, cool like everybody's entitled to make a book but she's making it on the backs of her own people so like yeah. that's kind of effed up in my opinion i mean Selena. she's the same person who sued i'm sorry tammy no 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 go ahead she's the same person who sued her school for racial discrimination back in 2006 with yes. the help of the, of the naacp yeah today she hates she, she you know she has a white husband who i'm sure calls her the n-word every time they have sex and when they're not having sex he probably calls her the n-word when she wakes up in the morning and calls her the n-word at night and I'm sure he'll call their children the N-words too, and I'm sure she'll love it. <laughs> Selena, is it, do, okay, so I wanna get, we hate Candace Owens, right? But I wanna get to what she's talking about because this is like a serious kind of question. And what Glenn Beck is asking, I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of white people are asking, do you think that there's any truth to what they're discussing? Is it possible that by having someone with, you know, maybe a record or, you know, a flawed human being at the center of our movement, are we delegitimizing de ourselves? First of all, you had a innocent black man who was detained and suffocated to death. I don't care what his past holds. I don't care what his transgressions were. No one deserves to be publicly executed. And if we were to see into the lives of Candace Owens and Glenn Beck and every single human being, you would see that there is no perfect human. The only thing that we have are laws and we have people who are supposed to abide by them. We have the law enforcement who are literally supposed to uh, enforce the laws and not abuse them. But instead they're using their power to kill people. That's the problem here. Candace Owens is a distraction. We shouldn't, I don't even, I, I don't even acknowledge her. I don't get myself upset and I don't even follow her on Twitter because I don't want to get myself upset because of whatever she's trying to do to make money. I don't care about her. She's part of the problem. And at the end of the day, to me, she needs to be drowned out. That's it. A boot look, a bootlicker will do what a bootlicker will do. And Candace Owens is a bootlicking Uncle Tom. And that's fine for her to bootlick in her own corner. The fact of the matter is, if we're going to go up the same standard that Glenn Beck has, should we really be trusting white people when they spent most of millennia having sex with their siblings and not washing their legs? No, because that's not fair. It doesn't matter if someone's quote unquote the perfect victim. It doesn't matter. No one deserves that treatment. I don't care what his history was. I can almost guarantee you the cops planted those drugs. I can almost promise you that there was no fentanyl found in the system and they lied about it. So I have no interest in what they're saying about the perfect victim. We don't want perfect victims. We want no victims. And that's the fact of the matter. Now, Candace Owens can go back to whatever cave she came from and continue to lick her white husbands behind. I agree. And for what it's worth, I think this whole interview is just an example of how respectability politics continues to demolish our humanity. I think 
it is very reasonable to expect that police officers will not murder you for no reason. It doesn't matter if you are a thug or if you're an upstanding citizen. I hate that, you know, we have to rely on having Christian Coopers at the forefront of the movement or that we need to rely on Martin Luther King's respectable quotes. No, let's get to the root of it. People shouldn't be killed, period. Yeah. So. I guess on to another story about second chances. Mm-hmm. Um, Kanye West came up in the news the other day for camera. donating $2 million to the families of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, which includes money for their cases and a college fund for Floyd's six-year-old daughter. And he was out in public with protesters at a George Floyd rally in Chicago. Stanley. Are we giving Kanye a second chance or no. what? No, that was nice of Kanye to take his mouth out of Donald Trump's backside. Real good for him, congratulations. But no, Kanye West worships white people. He's done. Selena, can you forgive him or was it just like a publicity stunt you think? I don't know what's in his heart, but I do know that what's in his mind, he's, he's suffered from mental illness. He's been very vocal about it. Um, so look, he said things that I think, I don't want to say unforgivable, but are really hard to grapple with. Like black people chose slavery and stuff like that. I think he needs help. I think he needs to take a seat. I will say I'm really happy at how the protesters, actually the organizers of that protest, how they responded when Kanye West got there. A black woman got on a bull, uh, the bullhorn and she said, you're not going to hijack this protest. This was organized by local leaders. And if you think you're too big and your celebrity is too big, go home. So to me, the way she reacted, and again, she was a black woman, to puts things in perspective. Like Kanye could show up, anyone could show up, but this is not about you. Don't make it about you. If you're here to do good, just do that, okay? Like I understand he gave $2 million. That $2 million helps. I'm not gonna sit there and, and act like that, you know, the money that he donated is, is not helping the cause because it does. But I also believe that, what, how does the saying go? A clock, a wrong clock is right to clock. A broken clock is right twice a day. So yeah. you have good people who do bad things, then you have bad people that sometimes do good things. It's all about, I mean, to me, I, I, I'm, I'm happy that he made those donations. I'm very happy about that. I mean, he owes folks that, I mean, he's gotten so much coon money he might as well pay back the black community with something. That's one. Two, Selena, I don't think you were insinuating this, but I feel like a lot of people have. I'm tired of folks trying to use mental health as an excuse for Kanye West and others. Mental health issues does not make you one. That is I agree with that. No, I, I was to say, I agree with that. And, you know, maybe the $2 million should have been $4 million um, to absolve him from the past sins because he has the money. But, you know, either way, like, it's always good when people want to say, I was wrong, I made mistakes in the past, and I want to, um, you know, do better work and do better going forward. But the things he did, like, it wasn't just hurtful. I mean, he sat down, he met with the president, who's literally the head of the white supremacy in this country. He, you know, tried to come up with some BS criminal justice reform that wasn't actually going to have any effect on the way black people are treated in this country. And now he wants to show up at a protest and donate $2 million and think it absolves himself of the past sins. Like he needs to continue to show up and continue to do the work and continue to donate money. He can't just like show up once and be like, oh, I was wrong for meeting the president. Like there's a lot more work that he needs to put in if he really wants, is serious about this kind of thing. Yeah. That's about So um, I do have some comments from Facebook Live. And first of all, shout out to everybody who's watching on Facebook Live. Ian- Ianta Sumthers, Flavius Maximus, and all of you who are watching on Facebook Live, thank you very much for watching, and please keep on giving us comments. Flavius says two things. First, he says, mental health does not make you a traitor to your race. That's a super fact. And then he said, Little Wayne is also trying to redeem himself. After saying some pretty trash things about Black people and police, he's now done six back-to-back interviews about police brutality. I'm sure in a couple of weeks, once the smoke is cleared, he'll be right back to being problematic again as well. So thank you very much for that, Flav. I'm not going to lie. I really, I don't like the, I mean, this is another problematic thing about me. I just, I can't disown Kanye. First of all, his music is really just objectively dope. Like, I- I the last two albums, though. Got old, a old Kanye. Got old, a, Kanye. old Kanye. Um, I like, 
I like all Kanye personally. And also the second part of that is that Kanye is, he really is like a bipolar icon. I'm not going to lie. Like when I see how he moves like publicly and then you find out that he has bipolar disorder, I'm like word. Cause that really makes sense. I really, really relate. Um, in one of his albums, I forget which one, it, which one it is. It's the one with yikes on it and all in, um, you know, he literally writes a song about like what it's like to be bipolar and like how he feel like it was like a, a stream of consciousness almost as like being in an episode and that song like really solidified to me um that i i gotta forgive my boy <laughs> i really i i hope i hope that this means he's changing in the right direction but all we can do is wait and see he said, he said That's fair. his daddy well, folks, we do have a poll going on right now on, um, in the Zoom chat. Um, is Kanye West music still good? Um, so far, it seems that 44% of the people who are doing this poll say F Kanye. 30% um, of them say no. And 11% of folks who have done, done this poll have said yes. Wow. Um, so the poll is I'll make sure I'll share the final results for people. Um, oh, oh it's, it's neck and neck between no and F Kanye. I don't know. Wow. Saying. You know what? All right. This the is part of my slanted, Stanley. The <laughs> Stanley. So I'm going to move on to somebody else that we need to think about forgiveness for, which is the National Football League. Okay. <laughs> and let's, let's see how, you know, we hurt your sports ball now. Um, on Friday, the NFL released a video statement through Commissioner Goodell that apologized for not listening to Black players as they used the league to protest peacefully. He says, we, the National Football League, condemn racism and the systemic oppression of Black people. We, the NFL, admit we were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier and encourage all to speak out and peacefully protest. We, the NFL, believe Black Lives Matter, like he said it, y'all. Um, then he admits that without Black players, and this is a quote, there would be no National Football League. Well, yeah, because now you've been some of the players. What is he, he told us that he's been protesting, promised that the NFL is listening, and said that he will be reaching out to players who have raised their voices and others on how they can improve and go forward for a better and more united NFL family. Well, Tammy, <laughs> I know you have a question, but I have another poll. <laughs> so Yes, I love the polls today. Let's go, let's go. <laughs> so I just want to launch this new poll. This is a very objective NFL poll, so please try to give a fair answer. <laughs> if you're on Zoom, you'll see the poll. If you're not on Zoom, we will share the poll results shortly. We just want to give folks a chance to vote. <laughs> Shout out to Evan Mastinardi, who's also um, watching on Facebook Live. Okay, so I'm assuming, Stanley, that you're not ready to uncancel the NFL, or are you just waiting like people on Twitter are until Cap gets his job back? Well, Timmy, I mean, let me vote. I mean, my goodness. I, how am I supposed to get an answer without my vote? I think everyone has voted now, so I'm going to share the results. Um, I also voted. I picked D, all of the above. So I'll share those results for folks. Amazing. Also watching on Facebook Live, as you can see, we did a poll. 90% of the people said F the NFL and pay Colin Kaepernick. Yes. Um, as it should be. Yes. Jackie's Selena, after, oh, I'm sorry, Tim, go ahead. So, Selena, the NFL is just one of many companies and brands right now issuing Black Lives Matter statements. So do you think that this is sincere and that they really do feel bad or is it a ploy for publicity, like a bandwagon ploy? The NFL revealed who they are years ago when they fired Colin Kaepernick for peacefully protesting while kneeling. Um, I mean, and they've been unapologetic since then. I do think that a number of companies are realizing the power of the black dollar and the power of black workers. I don't know if they think black lives matter but they think our money matters and they know that without our labor, their companies will not be sustained. So yeah, they're taking steps to try to rectify. Uh, time will tell. Um, I think that for most people, we want Colin Kaepernick to have his job back. He's been blackballed and he deserves a job. So, I mean, that's, if they really want to make a reckoning, that's what they need to do. They know that. Stop denying the issue and give him a job. No, wow. this, Cap was not fired. 
He opted out of his contract. Now, granted, it was a mutual agreement. I said he was blackballed. He, yeah, he is blackballed, but he didn't get fired. He got he opted out of his contract. It was a mutual agreement between him and the Niners, but he did opt out. Here's the thing. Like, the NFL, I agree with everything Selena says, but it goes beyond that because the NFL, like, inherently does not value black lives. And this is not even just about Kaepernick or the protests. It's about the CTE issue, which I bring up over and over again every time we talk about the NFL. They know, and the NFL has known for a long time, that you have a league that's predominantly made up of black players that is working for predominantly white owned teams. I think 90 plus percent of NFL teams are owned by white people. And you have men, all black men, almost all black men that are dying um, early deaths or getting seriously ill from this issue caused by playing football. And over and over again, we keep asking the NFL to address it among other things and they don't address it. And it continues and it goes on and on and on. So, you know, at the end of the day, yes, we want Kaepernick to get his job back. Yes. I mean, I don't think like the, Roger Goodell's statement to me is just platitudes of like jumping on a bandwagon. If the NFL really like actually valued black lives, then they would do something about the medical issue that's affecting 90% of black men that play for the NFL or have played for the NFL. That's valid, but we know they don't care. They don't, they don't care. And we, we know that they should, like Selena said, they've shown us a long time ago who they are. Um, Jackie posted in the chat, speaking of, you know, they've shown us who they are for a long time. Jackie posted in the chat about how Washington's football team, the Washington Redskins, also posted for Blackout Tuesday, talking about Black Lives Matter. Why don't you change your mascot and your team name, okay? If you really care about systemic oppression and people of color, cut the lip service. Cut the lip service. Y'all are so rich. Like the NFL, honestly, should not only hire Cap back and like get him drafted, but he should get back pay. He should get back pay because he hasn't been working, but he's been training every single year for the shot to get back into his career. So honestly, they should pay him for his time and his energy because he's been about it. And you put Black Lives Matter, put, put the coins in black people's hands. We have That's a question in the Q&A section. Jonathan Murray asked, do you think Jay-Z should have supported the NFL or put his dollars to create another league or do something completely else? Um, I'd like Selena to answer that question first. Stan, okay, Stanley, I know you are hot and bothered about this question and you want to answer, but I mean, the, this is my perspective. When we heard from Jay-Z and he decided to partner with the NFL, I do not think that it was a good and strategic move, but I strongly believe that he thinks the only way there will be change in this organization, it must come externally from the pressure we put on as activists, obviously, and also internally. He wanted to work with Roger Goodell to make change, social justice change. Now, that's, that was the explanation that we were given. What we saw play out didn't always, to me, align with that because they were selling merch and then they put, like, they were like, oh, everything's all good now that Jennifer Lopez is doing the Super Bowl. No. So I do believe that a lot more work needs to be done, but I don't trust Roger Goodell and all white men within the NFL to make these decisions if they're all executives. I think that someone there who is represents us, who understands our communities and understands our voice needs to be at that table. Jay-Z is the person who was either selected or chosen to represent us. I'm not saying he's the best person, but I'd rather have someone there when those decisions are made at the boardroom than no one because the NFL is still a billion dollar organization and the fact of the matter is there's still going to be black black men playing for this organization. Lena, just because you're at the table doesn't mean you're there with an opinion. You could just be the meal. Could. Yes, you're right. That could. And so far, Jay-Z looks like the platter because (laughs) he like, listen, Jay-Z has done nothing and the NFL has done nothing to make me think that Jay-Z didn't just sell out. They, 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 he signs with the NFL to do this thing, and then they have their new organization that gives grant money to an organization in Chicago that makes kids cut their dreads off and train them to become cops. That was the biggest thing we've seen from them. We haven't heard a peep from them at all during this entire process. We've barely heard a peep from Jay-Z. 
And anybody who's known me long enough or has watched the show long enough knows I'm a- Barely heard a peep from Jay-Z concerning what, Stanley? We barely heard a peep from Jay-Z. That's not true. I said barely. I'm not saying he said nothing, but I'm saying we barely heard a peep from Jay-Z. He's been taking a lot of action, especially in the past three weeks, to help the social justice initiatives. A number of actions. Number opening Number one. Oh, absolutely. Number one, like this is just one thing. He lent his private plane to the attorneys representing Ahmad Arbery so that they can make that court hearing on Thursday. That's number one. Number two, he personally called the governor of Minneapolis, I mean, Minnesota, so that they can start getting some, um, some justice for George Floyd. Number three, he's the one who's been calling on Keith Ellison and putting pressure on him to put pressure on the cops that killed George Floyd. So, and number four, he's been taking out full, he actually partnered with families who have lost someone to police violence to put out full page ads in newspapers across the country. Who reads newspapers? Older people. Who happens, like, and especially older conservative people so that they can get the word out and continue to spread awareness. Jay-Z has never silenced himself. So I'm going to jump in real quick. So I apologize. I was wrong. He didn't pressure Keith Ellison. Protesters pressured Keith Ellison. He was part of the people no, that put pressure was, on him. It was the movement on the ground. Jay-Z, was, had the, Jay-Z has the access and the ability to get Keith Ellison on the direct line just like I have access and the ability to get a state senator or somebody else on a direct line. But people power pressures them. I'm not denying that power. The fact of the matter is, like, he did those things. He also gave the NFL cover so that they can come out here with the Washington Redskins and say Black Lives Matter. And, like, and I still have not seen, like, he could do those good things and he still needs to be held accountable for what he did with the NFL. It's wrong. I mean, it's it's fair, but we're going to need, like, this is so much bigger. I mean, clearly, this is so much bigger than just activists on the ground now. Like, we're going to need people like Jay-Z, who may just, you know, be figureheads, um, who can do, you know, what they can individually and from within. But we're also going to need to maintain, like Stanley said, the pressure on these companies, because it's clear that they only talk when they're pressured to do so, which in turn gives people like Jay-Z an in to do more. Like if he brought up some more radical ideas now in the NFL, so, you know, let's see where he goes with this. Hopefully after the commissioner, um, you know, puts his money where his mouth is and starts calling for these initiatives, Jay-Z can be the one to seal the deal because we did feel a little betrayed, but it sounds like he's trying to do something. So it is what it is. Yeah, he got his uh, in the NFL, so now he could be an activist again, huh? The last, the last story I'm going to go to for today so we can jump right into the conversation um, is another strategic move, but one that... Yes, it was a statement, but was so gloriously petty and honestly big dick energy that I feel like we have to acknowledge it. Um, DC Mayor Bowser commissioned artists with murals DC and some volunteers to paint Black Lives Matter in giant, bold, yellow capital letters down a two block stretch on a street leading up to the White House and the square in which Trump held his recent performative Bible photo op was renamed Black Lives Matter Plaza. And if that's not direct action, I don't know what is. So first, Alyssa, I wanna find out from you. Is there any way that Trump can use his like federal power to override this or is my girl safe? Cause I'm loving that plaza. So I, my understanding is that the way DC is set up, some of it is federal land in which case Trump could override it, but the rest of it is not federal land. It's actually District of Columbia property, which means it's operated by the mayor. Um, so if this is truly actually on DC proper, um, then this is not something that I can see Trump overriding. That said, you know, I, I, don't, I haven't been able to verify this directly, so maybe if somebody could, but a, a friend of mine who's a big activist within this movement posted something the other day that really caught my eye, that the mayor actually looked to in, you know, increase the police budget last year by $19 million. So, you know, gestures are nice and all, and it's always fun to see people trolling the president, and that should continue. Um, but if it's correct that the D.C. mayor did ask for $19 million more for the police in D.C., 
then that is extremely problematic. And it's, uh, you know, we shouldn't just be going, oh, this is great. These are gestures. We love that the, the street was painted. We should all be still be asking, why is all this money going to the police department? Oh, hmm. that's super weird. I didn't, I didn't know that she was like funding, you know, that she's not pro defunding the police. My understanding is she's not, and that she actually asked for an increase of money to go to the police last year. Has she changed her position? I'm not sure. I haven't heard anything. I haven't actually been able to verify the $19 million number explicitly, but I, my, ha, in my research that I've done, there definitely was a budget request made last year to request additional money for the D.C. Police Department. Stanley, you're in politics. You got any connects in D.C. that can put their foot on her neck? <laughs> um, I don't know, maybe. But I think we need to have a conversation about defunding the police. I agree with it 100%, but I don't think people understand what that means, um, which is fair because it's a new, it's new for a lot of people who have not been doing prison abolition work for a long time. It's new, but it's not as simple as defunding the police. It's about where the money will go and what we replace the police with. And that's a conversation that just can't happen overnight. So I just want to flag that for folks. On that note, I'm going to pass it to Selena for final comments, and then maybe we can start this riveting conversation. Yeah, so when I saw how a D.C. mayor, who is a Black woman as that, was trolling President Trump, I was all for her. Like, I love the fact that she made such a big and bold statement a day before thousands of people swarmed D.C. for a huge protest, a Black Lives Matter rally and protest. Um, however, the Black Lives Matter chapter of D.C. actually called out the mayor. She, they called this action for a performative, um, basically an empty gesture. I forget the exact term that they used, but they said that sh this mayor has fallen on the wrong side of history when it comes to policing and actually putting the changes in place that would protect Black lives. So yes, I love the gesture, but we need to take it a step further. And the mayor of DC has a lot of power to do that. So I'm hoping that in addition to trolling President Trump, she would take those measures. That makes me sad to hear because I, you know, I, I admit I don't, you know, look into DC politics a lot. So I was just like, I Googled her, her name. I saw it was a black woman and I was like, Yas Queen, are you, uh, are you on the team? But it turns out that everyone these days is just making empty statements. I hope that, you know, this movement isn't quelled because the masses think, oh, brands are speaking up, you know, politicians are speaking up. It means that they recognize the problem. We can go back in our houses. Let's yeah. hope that people keep the pressure so that these little gestures become actual policies within companies, within government, all that. Yeah, yeah. And, and just to clarify my statement, it's nuanced. Yeah. I think it's perfectly okay to like that the Black Lives Matter painting and yeah. the name, the fact that they renamed uh, re, uh, the plaza. However, you know, I'm someone who said, okay, let's take it a step further. Right. And Don't uh, just talk about it, be about it. Absolutely. So, you know, that being said, I do want to switch gears a little bit and actually talk about the main topic of today because we see so many people out in the streets. The chance of no justice, no peace, I can't breathe, and Black Lives Matter can be heard around the world as thousands of people march and gather in solidarity with the movement to end anti-Black racism. From the US to Canada, Mexico, Brazil, Europe, Nigeria, East Jerusalem, Australia, New Zealand, and Kenya, protesters are galvanizing to demand justice for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and the countless men and women who were killed by the hands of police or white vigilantes. However, as a multi-racial coalition of protesters led by young people march for uh, racial justice, as this has swept the globe, dozens of videos capturing police brutality are also circulating on the internet. From Minnesota to New York, Texas, and California, uh, police officers have demonstrated just how problematic law enforcement is in the US. We've seen videos of an NYPD officer, uh, officers at that in an SUV drive through a crowd of protesters in Brooklyn. There's video of police officers violently shoving a woman to the ground during a demonstration who as a result suffered from a seizure and a concussion. At another protest in New York, an officer yanked a face mask off of a black man 
who was standing with his hands in the air and then pepper sprayed him. In Buffalo, New York, two officers shoved a 75-year-old man to the ground. And there's also video of police beating peaceful protesters in Philadelphia. Now, these accounts go on and on from Atlanta to Florida. I literally don't even have the time to talk about this. But however, all they're doing is furthering the fuel to call to end police violence and ultimately dismantle the entire system of white supremacy. So in today's episode of Be Heard Talk, we're going to talk about the audacious goal of dismantling structural racism and the role that we all play in this fight. And I want to start this conversation by first defining structural racism, which is the normalization and legitimization of an array of dynamics that includes history, culture, institution, and interpersonal interactions that routinely advantage white people. It's a system of hierarchy and inequality that characterizes white supremacy as um, white people, excuse me, as peripheral as and everyone else as non, and that includes, you know, Latino people, Asian, Native Americans, all people of color. So essentially structural racism encompasses the entire system of white supremacy and which is diffused and infused in all aspects of our society. Big difference between individual racism, which is, okay, you, you've heard, you know, maybe you've heard someone say a racist joke. You've heard them use the N-word. That person is individually racist. We're talking about institutionalized racism. So I want to start this panel discussion by actually getting you all's response to the massive worldwide protests and calls to dismantle structural racism. I'll throw it at you first, Alyssa. So, I mean, it's, it's amazing to see the amount of people that have come out in the streets to protest against systemic racism. Um, and, but it also, in some ways, is, is expected. I mean, the world watched while for nine minutes a police officer held his knee on George Floyd's neck. I had people contact me or I saw people posting on Facebook that like are conservatives or like, you know, that never, that are like pro-police that were outraged and disgusted by that video. Um, so it's no surprise we see this amount of people on the streets, but, and I think it's good. Um, but I think that the next part of that is that we have to figure out how to take that kind of energy and use it to get into really making the kind of systemic changes that we need to make in this country and around the world to combat systemic racism. Absolutely. Tammy, what is your reaction to uh, just the world's reaction? Do you find it um, encouraging at all? I feel really weird about it. Um, I, you know, I change like my thoughts often about it and I've been having like a lot of late night realizations about it. So First thing I'd like to note is that this is a perfect storm. You know, the literal whole world is creeping out of a major health pandemic, right? Where, you know, most people in most countries have been locked up in their homes, you know, with nothing to do, lots of fear, isolation, you know, feeling hateful and worried and stressed and, you know, needing to come together. And then this video comes out that elicits such an emotional response and demands immediate and effective attention, just as the world in the US is opening up, causing masses to pour out into the street. Like, to me, it's just, I'm happy to see it. Like, as an activist, you know, I personally, you know, in the campaign that I work for, you know, we're using this momentum to get this police reform bill passed. And that is phenomenal. Like getting the conversation out there and seeing people's opinions change before our very eyes and seeing these white TikTokers crying, talking about they educating their parents now on police brutality, that's amazing. But also I have deep fear and deep worry about the world's reactions to it. <clears throat> when I see corporate and media conglomerates jump onto the bandwagon, it makes me feel that it's sort of an empty sentiment. It makes me feel that it's, you know, just kind of the latest trend that in a few weeks will die down and will actively harm the movement because people will say, well, we talked about that. We addressed that. 
we passed this one cute little bill in this one cute little city. So shut up now, black people. And that's what gets me worried. The second thing is that, you know, we're seeing all this rampant police brutality, but this will have long-standing effects. Do you know how many people have lost their eyes this past 12 days in the US to rubber bullets alone? They're not showing it, but so many youth are going to leave this traumatized. And that is something that we're gonna have to clean up afterward. So I feel good, but I'm also like scared and nervous and weird and stressed. I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely a mixture of emotions that I think a lot of us are feeling. Stanley, how are you feeling? Um, I'm feeling purpose-driven right now. Uh, frustrated. Sorry, let's turn my camera back on. I'm feeling frustrated, challenged, sad, and stressed and all those things. But more than anything, I'm feeling purpose-driven. Because, because of the work of people who have been marching and making noise and shutting things down and putting pressure on people, we actually have a window to get some solid... before not reforms, but some solid policies through that could really help to build a larger scope of police transparency. So what I'm talking about right now specifically is 50A, the full repeal of 50A, which would then make public um, the information of cops who've had violations or who've had misconduct. So that's a big thing that's in the work. I know the um, state legislature has been working on that all weekend and it's been blocked because before because the governor didn't want to do it because the NYPD didn't want to do it and because the mayor had the NYPD's back. And there seems like there's a lot of movement in the legislature right now. I know there's a bill that if you go on NewYorkStateSenate.gov, you go to their website, um, Jamal Bailey and John McDonald are sponsoring a bill. Um, I think Alyssa might be the best person if she wants to explain like what that bill is and why it's important, she should. But like that's one of the things that's giving me, making me feel hopeful. So just so people know what 50A is, 50A is a section of the law in New York State, which essentially blocks the public um, and lawyers and um, people in the press from seeing uh, police and firefighter and uh, Department of Cor Corrections personnel records. Um, I, I mean, mainly when we're talking about 50A in this context, we're talking about the personnel records of police officers, but obviously corrections officers should also be included in that. Um, the firefight department doesn't usually come to your house and strangle you to death. Um, and so essentially when um, lawyers or the government, you know, or the press or just the public wants to get information about misconduct that's been committed by a police officer in New York, it's almost impossible to get that. And it's because this law, 50A, prevents the public from seeing these police personnel records. And so the push here is to reform 50A or um, actually abolish 50A altogether and to make it easier for the public to access personnel records. Um, and you know that doesn't necessarily mean a, we need to know if a police officer got disciplined because he didn't wear black socks to work one day. It means yeah. we wanna know if a police officer got disciplined for ble beating up 10 black people in the past two weeks. We wanna know if a police officer was disciplined for lying on the stand. We wanna know if a police officer was disciplined for putting false information in, a, in an arrest report, which you know I see in my line of work all the time as a civil rights attorney who sues the NYPD for false arrest. That's a huge problem. Um, and we don't know when we bring a lawsuit how many officers or how many times this officer may have done that kind of misconduct in the past. And it's not just the kind of misconduct where you lay on somebody's neck or, you know, shoot somebody and kill them when they're unarmed. It's the kind of misconduct where people go to jail for 24 hours, 48 hours, five days, 10 days, two years for the, because a police officer lied on a police report. And if they've done it once, they're going to do it again. And we don't know about it because 58 blocks us from finding out what it is. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Alyssa, for giving us a broader perspective of why 50A is so important. Um, I do think that it is, I don't want to say a small step because it would have huge consequences, but I do think that there's a larger call to defund police across the country altogether. And that also plays a really big role in dismantling structural racism. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how, like, in addition to 50A, communities around the country are saying defund police especially in LA they just cut um, in LA they just promised not to give LAPD millions of dollars more in the budget but instead to redirect that funding towards uh, programs and support for communities of color uh, Tammy I'll throw it at you first why what does it mean to defund the police and why is that so important in the fight against racism 
So when people hear defund the police, I think the knee-jerk reaction is, well, who's going to help with crime? Um, the thing that people need to understand, and, and this is coming directly from a former chief of police in Dallas, is the police get thrown stuff all the time that they are not capable of dealing with, right? We just kind of assume that because they out in these streets, they are our problem solvers. And it's time for us to reevaluate what the police's role is in society. So defunding the police isn't necessarily about stripping it of all its money and power, and then kind of saying like, you know, go do what you need to do, but we're not gonna give you anything. Defunding the police is strategically changing the budget and replacing it with other professionals and community leaders who are better suited for certain jobs. For example, the NYPD has a $6 billion budget, right? A lot of that money goes to officers who are in black and brown schools for security. A lot of educators, as well as education activists, argue that this is harmful for black and brown students. And instead, that money should go towards guidance counselors, social workers, and others who could help kids alleviate issues that might cause them to act out otherwise. Another good example is how the NYPD has tons of riot gear that we see out in the streets. Yet New York State could not afford to give our healthcare workers the right PPE during the pandemic. That money can be reallocated. Now, looking at all of the things that the NYPD is charged to do, right? They have to solve homicide. They have to maintain order in the streets. They have to be up in the schools. They have to host events for kids. They have to be out in the courts playing basketball with the kids. None of that is necessarily the job of a police officer or should be. And community activists are calling for a defund to really reevaluate how that money could go back into community leaders whose role those things actually are. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for that, uh, Tammy. Uh, you know, Stanley, uh, Tammy just gave a great job, a great breakdown of what defunding the police looks like and why it would be effective and an effective improvement for communities of color. You talked about it earlier in this segment as well uh, in the show. How does defunding the police play into the larger goal to actually get rid of white supremacy, dismantle structural racism? Well, it's like most pieces of policy. It doesn't solve the problem. It's about harm reduction and like creating more space to help shift the worldview. And if folks are wondering about what the funding the police would look like, I just pasted into the Zoom chat um, a letter that the New York City Comptroller Scott Stringer sent to the mayor's office with a proposal of cutting the police department by $1.1 billion. So if you're looking at that document, it shows all the places where you can cut the police and it doesn't even actually impact policing. The police has $6 billion that we know of. Then they have another budget that no one even knows how much money they have in there or what they spend it on. And then they have an entire budget just for PR. So every time a cop punches you in the face, there's a new commercial with a cop giving Andre a hot dog and smiling with some music in the background. They have a budget for that. There are budget things. Last year, the NYPD spent $728 million on overtime for police officers. So there's a lot of places where you can make cuts at right now that would impact that. And as far as like dealing with the overall idea of racism, you really do need to like, we need to have a larger conversation about what we're really looking for because the police as they are now are not helpful and we need to abolish them. So you need to ask the question of like, what does safety actually look like? What gets us there and what do we need? Because the police as they are, were meant to catch slaves. They're there to protect property. They're there to protect the interests of those who are rich. In New York, they were there to, to watch out for Irish people and for black people. That's what they started for. So we really need to like start to reframe what safety looks like and what we actually need. Alyssa, where do you stand in the discussions about police? Are you, do, do, can police be reformed? Do they need to be replaced? Or does it need to be abolished? Well, so I think that the solution is to reallocate the funds. I, I think that are there situations where we may, I think, want the police where they may be necessary. And sit, like, for example, a woman gets raped. Where is she supposed to go if um, we don't have police? Okay, fine. We can uh, say that there are situations where we would want the police. But I think the real big point, just to piggyback on what 
Tammy and Stanley were saying is that the funds are not allocated properly. I mean, just on the regular budget, the police department got almost $6 billion last year, but the Department of Homeless Services got only $2 billion. The Department of Health in New York City only got $1.7 million. Um, so if, I've always said this, and I know I've said this before on the show, everything's related to everything else. If you reallocate resources in the budget and you spend more money on homeless outreach, you spend more money on um, mental health services, you spend more money on um, providing homeless people with housing, um, and you deal with all these social problems in a manner that does not involve police, then the only thing you really need the police for is to deal with actually responding to serious crimes, um, which really should be the only job that the police actually do. And, and just to add one more thing, when we're talking about funding, um, you brought up Stanley Scott Stringer calling for defunding the police. Scott Stringer's office, the comptroller, they're the one who pays out on these false arrest lawsuits when my office like brings a lawsuit against the city. Last year, the comptroller's office paid between 230 and 260 million dollars in false arrest and police misconduct lawsuits. So you want to talk about where all of our money as taxpayers are going? Um, you know, if we were actually reforming the police and not just, you know, default to funding the police and reforming the police for what they do need to be out there doing, then our tax dollars would not be going to the tune of 230 to 260 million dollars a year to pay out for people who have been falsely arrested, assaulted by the police, subjected to excessive force, of which 90 plus percent are people of color who live in New York City. Yeah, those are great points. And I'm glad that we did have some time to talk about uh, policing because criminal justice reform is something that uh, we've been fighting for and talking about for, for decades. And obviously, you know, George Floyd's killing was the tipping point. But I think another large part of dismantling structural racism comes with our white allies, our, our white friends, uh, those people who are not of color. And it's, you know, to quote Linda um, Sarsour, who was at a rally that I attended yesterday, she said, and I quote, it is not on the burden to eradicate racism does not fall on black people. Um, and I was out there with thousands of people who, and, and the majority of them were white. And to me, it definitely was encouraging because black people didn't start racism. And if you ask me, we can't, we can't just, we, we're gonna need a coalition of people, of like-minded folks to dismantle this structure. So I want to throw it to you, Alyssa, because in addition to being an ally, you obviously you're a civil rights attorney, you sue the cops for a living, uh, and, and most of the people you defend happen to be black or brown. In your opinion, what does white accountability look like and what role does it serve in dismantling structural racism? I mean, uh, racism is not a black people's problem. It's a white people's problem. White people created the structural racism, um, mostly, I think, as Tammy pointed out in the comments, to continue to reinforce capitalism, um, which is why you see so many people saying things like, oh, but the destruction of property. Like, we should be prioritizing talking about the destruction of Black lives through policing, not whether or not property is destructed. But the role that really white people need to play is those of us who are woke, for lack of a better way to put it, we have to have continue, we're the ones who have to have those conversations. It's not up to Stanley or Selena or Tammy to have to talk to their white friends about the way structural racism affects people of color. It's up to people like me and other white people that I know that have that information to continue to talk to their friends and their communities and their family members. It's up to us to recommend things for them to read. Like for example, I my mom, who I love, who is a, you know, a liberal white woman who's like a baby boomer, I had to have this conversation with her. And then I was like, you need to read Michelle Alexander. And I went and got her a copy of the book. I was like, you need to read this book. Like, you know, and, you know, have conversations with your friends, inform them about what's going on, give them statistics, give them <laughs> books that they can read, whether it's Tanahashi Coates, Between the World and Me, whether it's Paul Butler, uh, whether it's, you know, Michelle Alexander, there's so many resources out there. It's our job as white people to inform our friends and family members about just how structural racism works, um, because that's how things are gonna get fixed. You really need to have white people getting involved and not just protesting in the streets, but contacting their elected officials and saying, you know, we don't agree with this system. You know, we understand what's going on and, and this has to change because at the end of the day, like it has to be coming from all of us. And in particular, it has to be coming from white people. Yeah. Tammy, what should white people do to dismantle a racist system erected for them? 
You know, Alyssa, thank you for sharing your point, Alyssa. I'm like really happy to hear this from someone who's about that life. Um, and it makes me feel good because that's the advice I've been giving my white friends. Um, there's an Angela Davis quote that your, you know, your opinion made me think of, which is, it is not enough for white people to be non-racist, but they must be actively anti-racist. And education for me, you know, like Alyssa talked about, that is really a key cornerstone. Um, since Alyssa already talked about it, I won't talk about education. Be, uh, just want to shout out my friend Nina, who's watching this show right now. Nina is one of my really good friends and an ally and someone who's been on this show. And Nina hit me up but not to ask me to educate her. She hit me up saying, hey, I have these resources. I'm gonna do this. Like, what do you think is a good next step? And that, that is everything. Because when you think about it, how are white people gonna listen to black people on black issues? They don't have the relatability. But if white folks talk as white people to other white people, they can frame it in a way that maybe they can understand better. Um, the real kind of point I wanna make answering this question, Selena, though, um, besides the education piece, is that white people need to learn that this isn't about them. They have a key role to play but the number one thing that I see in activism that is still a huge problem, even right now, is that white people feel like they still need to be at the forefront. Um, I personally believe that, to me, this is when I see, you know, when I see a white organizer grab the mic from a black organizer and kind of try to put themselves at the forefront and speak on the issue, even though they have no context, what that tells me is that that person is on the right path, but they still have a lot of unlearning to do. Because truly what white allies need to do is amplify our message. Black and brown activists have been saying the same thing for decades and hundreds and hundreds of years, but they're not listening to us. So white allies need to put their bodies on the line and use their cute little megaphones to get our points to the masses. Because ultimately, their privilege is being heard, understood, and empathized with, while our plight is to, you know, have to scream at the oppressor to understand what we're saying. So white allies, to me, what's effective for me is when they join our movements and they ask, what can we do to amplify you? What can we do to make your movement stronger? Family? So, Tammy, I want to disagree with you just slightly when you said, white people, this is not about you. I think your frame of like, yes, like, take a step back is absolutely correct. But I also want to say, white people, this is about you. We don't need white people who are anti-racist because they see what's happened to black people and they think it's wrong. I mean, that's good, but you need to understand that racism is an issue that impacts you too. Because unless white people see how racism hurts them, the way that men need to see how sexism hurts them, it's never going to be a fight that white people fully engage in. And racism has hurt white people in major ways. Um, one of the biggest and clearest ways is like how white people lose their culture because white is this default thing now. So we don't get to hear about how like maybe someone is from Germany or they're Irish in that culture. It's just white. Whiteness has a history of genocide and violence and is driven by patriarchy and capitalism, which has hurt white people as well. Because then when you have poor white people and white people who are suffering, it is not acknowledged because you must have done something wrong because the system was built specifically for you to succeed. So white people need to understand how racism impacts them, just like men need to understand how patriarchy and sexism impacts them. And if you do that and really believe it, then we can dismantle racism. And to add to Stanley's point, another way that white that uh, racism has hurt white people, it's caused them to vote against their own interests. Donald Trump ran on a platform of pure racism. He was, you know, he had the Republican agenda, which was don't tax the don't tax the rich, but tax the poor. And basically, white people all they heard was Mexicans or rapists and drug dealers, and they coalesced around a, a, a racist white capitalist millionaire that cannot relate to them so again that's another way but we as we start to sort of 
uh, bring this conversation to a close. You know, we talked about a number of different things. Of course, there are a, a lot, a lot goes into dismantling uh, structural racism, which has been here since the inception of America. And we don't have time to talk about every single angle, but I do want to just start to wrap this conversation up because elections also play a role as well. We talked about education, policing, criminal justice, uh, elections play a role too. Um, Alyssa, what role do elections play when it comes to creating the change that we so desperately need? Listen, I think elections play an important role, but they're not the entire role. Like racism wasn't eradicated when Barack Obama became the president. Um, you know, racism is not eradicated just because there's more black people that are elected to office. Uh, racism is not eradicated because we're, you know, doing the work to try and elect people. Sure, elections have consequences. They do. And we should be out there and we should be voting and we should then take the next step, which is to hold our elected officials accountable and, you know, contact them to support bills like the repeal or reform of 50A. But we have to realize that, like, elections are not going to change everything in this country. Um, and we have to say, okay, they play this important role, but we need to continue to do the other important anti-racist work on the ground um, if we really want to combat structural racism. Yeah, and um, Stanley, we talked a lot about, you know, the different aspects. Obviously, we couldn't touch on all of them. Uh, yeah. But in your opinion, what can we all do to address systemic racism and inequality and the injustices that it reaps? We all need to be working to decolonize our minds. Racism impacts all of us. We know how racism impacts white people and white people play that crap out every single day. But between black people and non-black people of color, anti-blackness and colorism is a huge thing. And it's a conversation that we have to have happen because right now, even in the midst of all of this, what usually happens is dark-skinned black women are pushed away from the conversation and women in particular are pushed away from the conversation. So we all need to be doing the work to decolonize our minds. One of the books I would suggest as a great framework to start thinking about that, it's a, it's a bit thick, but it's a great read. It's stamped from the beginning. And um, as a way to be helpful, I plan to put out a list of books that folks can be reading if they want to really be digging deeper about anti-racism and structural racism, because it goes much deeper than most of us have ever talked about. And it's a journey. So start decolonizing your minds and start equipping yourself with the tools to be anti-racist and a liberational person. Tammy, what can we all do to address systemic racism and the inequalities and injustice that it reaps? So start on learning and then start sharing what you have discovered. I mean, a lot of people shy away, I think, from activism because it seems so exhausting to always have to, you know, put yourself out there. But activism, you know, yes, it is, Stanley, but, but activism is also healing. Um, is. Activism is learning more about yourself, your place in society, and the world around you. And then activism is also networking with individuals in your community, in your state, of your color, you know, of different backgrounds. And so I really encourage everyone, everyone who feels something about this movement, get on the internet, learn something new, and then share that with someone in your network. It doesn't have to be a close friend, but it can be. It can be a total stranger, it can be a neighbor, and then come up with an idea on what you can do on that topic. Become an activist, do some unlearning. Thank you for that. And I'll just end this conversation by, like Tammy said, it's a journey, but the journey starts today with every single person. And I think that one of the fundamental things that we need to do, number one, is we need to acknowledge racism and the fact that white supremacy is baked into every aspect of American society. As a result, there are inequalities in health, income, education, business, politics, you name it. And if we don't acknowledge oppression and these racial injustices, then obviously we're gonna to continue to repeat them as we've done for the last 400, 500 years. Another thing we should all be doing is investing in black owned businesses, donating to progressive social justice organizations and advocacy groups, and also investing in mutual aid networks that provide uh, emergency assistance to vulnerable communities at this time. They're making sure that their community members are being fed, housed, and sustained, especially during the pandemic COVID-19. Education, something we already addressed. Not only 
Do we need to self-educate? But we need to advocate for education in our schools. There is no reason why children across America only learn about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Harriet Tubman, if that. There's no reason why one of my best friends told me she didn't even know about lynching until college. There is no reason why people, the children are not taught implicit bias. Because even because what's happening is they experience it firsthand on the playground, they experience it in the cafeteria, but they don't have the language to talk about it. I remember the first time that I was called the N-word was in third grade. And I remember the first time that I experienced direct racism was in, when I was in first grade and a, a white girl told me I can't play with them because I'm black. And I didn't, I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know how that felt. Obviously, I had to go home and talk to my mom because the teachers aren't addressing it. We can't, we can't act like students and children aren't experiencing racism because they are. And if they aren't experiencing racism, they're the ones who are perpetuating it. So let's acknowledge that, number one. Another thing, defunding the police. We talked about that extensively on today's show. Rather than taking our tax dollars to support the militarization of the police, we need to redirect that money into building our communities. And what do our communities need at this time? We need counselors. We need therapists. We need things that's going to help us deal with the centuries of Black trauma that have been poured onto us and that we feel each and every day. That's something that we could be doing. And lastly, a another simple solution is making your voice heard by signing petitions, uh, uh, making sure that you are talking to your elected officials, and making sure you protest at the polls. Again, this is a journey. We all play a role. But if we work together, just like we can all come together in March, if we work together and take these next steps, then maybe, just maybe, the next generation won't have it as hard as we do. And maybe they won't have to experience another George Floyd public lynching. On that note, I want to thank everyone who tuned in to Be Her Talk today. We appreciate you all, especially those who watch live via Facebook, via, uh, via Zoom, and those who are listening via podcast. Please share Be Her Talk because this is a platform where we talk about these issues unfiltered and unapologetically. And our mission is to inform, educate, and empower. And by supporting us, we will support the causes that will bring America into a new way of thinking. So please, we appreciate all of your support and please continue to do so. Uh, you can support us on GoFundMe. Um, the GoFundMe, what is it, Tammy? GoFundMe slash? I don't know what the URL is, but is it's it like, Be Heard. Is it Be Heard? Yes. Be Heard Talk, you can search us. I will send the link around on the Facebook Live and in the group. So join Be Heard Culture, Power, and Politics. Thank you for that. And thank you, Alyssa. We appreciate it hearing from you once again, coming back to the show. And thank you to everyone else. And we'll see you again next Sunday, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in.